I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about culture and features James Kerr, international best-selling author of Legacy, What the All Blacks Can Teach Us About the Business of Life, and Paul Ruse, premiership-winning coach of the Sydney Swans in the Australian Football League. This episode is sponsored by Leaders in Sport, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. James Kerr, welcome to the show. Hi, Cody. It's brilliant to be here. And we've got Paul Ruse here as well from San Francisco. Ruse, how are you? Good, Cody. Yeah, good, mate. I've been travelling a bit, so I've landed in San Fran, so it's good to, uh, to catch up with you and James, absolutely. So you've got a tan from, uh, from all your travels? <laughs> yeah, it was a bit uh, varied. So it was uh, coolish in Peru and then got hotter as we went up through Central America. So now it was a great time with the family, which is good. Love it. I think this is going to be a great conversation. and I love bringing you two guys together to talk about culture because it's something that you guys have lived and breathed, both in terms of what you've written about. You know, Bruzy, you've been writing the coalface and, and now you guys have both got culture consultancies so working with businesses and, and different organizations to, to bring some of those practices that you've learned. So uh, why don't we start with you, James? Your book, Legacy, uh, was obviously a, a labor of love for you about the All Blacks and, and being a Kiwi. And so, you know, being able to document the process of the most successful sports team in the world. So let's start talking about that. Why don't you tell the audience kind of what the All Blacks mean to you and, and New Zealanders, and why the project was so important to you. Great. Yeah, I mean, you know, in New Zealand, New, New Zealand, they call it, it's a country of four million stakeholders or four million selectors for the All Blacks. It's a national religion in, in many ways. Um, you know, I'm just one of those stakeholders. Uh, you know, the best thing you can hear in New Zealand is you're a rugby player on your way up is, you know, one day, son, you'll be an All Black. You know, they're the gods and the pantheon and the pub talk. Um, kind of embodies the best of what it means to be a New Zealander. And, you know, their legacy is extraordinary. They're arguably the most successful team in world sport. Difficult to compare different codes, but, you know, they're, they're running at a something like a 78% win ratio over 125 years. You know, they've only lost at home about 40 times over that 125 years. So they currently hold all the silverware. It's the important silverware it's possible to own in, in their sport. Um, dual world champions, you know, two in a row. And it's all kind of based on, you know, the early days, the legacy. In in 1905, the originals ransacked the United Kingdom, you know, on a, on a long, long tour and kind of set the stage in a way and, and proved to a country that the small South Pacific nation of, of now only four, four and a half million people can can fight, you know, on the big stage on against anyone and, and not just stay even but kind of prevail and that's massive for for a New Zealand identity for that sort of South Pacific nation and so on so it has kind of uh, crystallized um, you know the best of what it means to be a New Zealand and and as a New Zealander living in London uh, and having been away from home for a long long time you know I was always it was kind of a coming home I guess a labor of love and I was worked with a lot of high performing teams around the world but I I was fascinating by the kind of the original and the best if you like and and particularly by that that culture that specific culture you know and how that culture creates competitive edge you know a, a decisive advantage uh for for, for, for that unit of, of players yeah that's really interesting and you touched on something there talking about the early days i'll, I'll go to you paul you kind of left your legacy with the Sydney Swans and, and the Bloods culture that they were kind of um, renowned for, but it was that tying back to the South Melbourne roots of that. So, like, what was the origin of that? Because it was a it was a whole project around changing the culture at Sydney for you guys. And so, why was it important to dig into that South Melbourne side of things rather than you know once they had moved to Sydney and, and moved city completely? Yeah, it was interesting going up. I, I firstly started at Sydney as a player. So, so coming from Fitzroy, which is a really traditional Victorian club, and for those that, that don't know, a lot of the listeners probably wouldn't realise, 
Australian Football League really stemmed from the Victorian Football League. So you had 12 teams in Victoria. They were extremely tribal and extremely proud of their heritage, etc., etc. So going to Sydney, which was a relocated BFL team, South Melbourne, to, to the Sydney Swans. And when I arrived as a player, you know, one thing I thought was sort of missing and it'd be interesting to bring James in talking about the All Blacks and the, you know, the cultural and the heritage and what it means to, to be, as he explained then. But, I mean, it's just a piece that was missing. You know, the, the Sydney good coaches and good players and good organisation by the time I got there. But I just felt there was no real appreciation of what South Melbourne meant to Sydney. And as we were doing our sort of cultural piece and our behavioural piece, and, and we were trying to come up with a, I guess, a catch cry for want of a better term. And I'm not a massive fan of them, to be honest, mm-hmm. unless they really evolved organically. And I was reminded, I, I, I thought it was Heath James, one of the players whose dad actually played for the for the Bloods for South Melbourne, that, that actually mentioned it in one of our two-day conferences when we were trying to set our standards. And he sort of why don't we call ourselves the Bloods? And it was something that was probably reasonably protected for a number of years until Kirky got up on the, the podium when we won the, the premiership and said this one was from the Bloods. But it was really to tie something back and for the current players to understand how difficult it was you know, transitioning for South Melbourne, which was a really terrible time for South Melbourne supporters in 1981. But equally, talking about Bobby Skilton, Peter Bedford, some of these great players that had played for South Melbourne. So... That was the piece that we really linked in, and it was a really important piece of linking that into to our behaviours. And, and it turned out that sort of people still remember the Bloods, and as I said, it was a result of Kirky when we got up, when we won the Premiership in '05, and he got up and grabbed his jump and said, "This one's for the Bloods." Yeah, well, it certainly had an impact. I mean, even our boys, you know, Team Canada, we call ourselves the Bloods, and it's because of that idea and linking it back to something different and. Uh, you know, obviously we wear the red and white and, and the Canadian colours and there's just some resemblances there. But it, it certainly had a big impact on the footy world. Um, I'm curious, though, once you went back to Melbourne as the coach, again, a, a very historic club and one of the oldest football clubs in the world, for, for those that don't know, the Melbourne Footy Club. What was similar or different once you went back there and, and kind of tried to rejuvenate that club on the field? It was probably completely different from the sense of I mentioned the Bloods because probably what you face a lot when you go to a really traditional club is a lot of noise around the history, a lot of noise around past players and, and they're well meaning past players. But Melbourne had a great heritage. They started the comp- you know, they started the league, they wrote the rules. So there was no sort of problem in terms of trying to explain to the players. It was almost the opposite. It was almost like, guys, you, you don't worry about the past. You've got to create your own sort of sense of, of what you are, what you want to create, because your, your, your history is so strong. You know, it really is. Um, so really it was more focusing on the behaviours, and, and that really didn't change. The, the similarities between the Sydney Swans and Melbourne in terms of the way we set up the behaviours and in terms of we set up the cultures were very, very similar. But in terms of our heritage, it was very different. I had to push it. We had to get a video done in Sydney, which was Barry Round, Paul Kelly, I think, you know, um, Dennis Carroll, past captains, et cetera, et cetera. But we didn't need to do that in Melbourne because it's really in your face. You know, Melbourne's a very, very football, AFL-orientated state. So you didn't need to talk about the past. It was almost like trying to say to the guys, as I said, forget the past. You know, it's there. Don't let it haunt you, but let's now create our own history. And that was a really big difference between the two uh, the two footy clubs. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's really interesting as well because what I've been stewing on at the moment is Manchester United. And obviously they're in the news a lot at the moment. But a lot of it stems from this culture and, and the idea that potentially they're completely out of whack, at least in, the, in terms of the on-field element of their club. Obviously, commercially, they're a, a gigantic success and a runaway success there, but they've kind of fallen out of whack with a lot of the core elements on field. I'd love, actually, I'm going to throw this open. Both of you guys, in looking at kind of Manchester United and, and what's just happened there, any opinions or, or views in terms of that club? I think James would probably defer to him because it's probably more similar to what 
you know, the world stages. It's interesting, James. I'll be fascinating your views, but I think a lot of world sport has become very, very individual-based, you know, and, and I think when you look at Manchester United, I'm probably less okay with soccer than I am with the NFL and basketball. It's very star power orientated. It's very who's the coach and who's the star player and who are the transfer fees. And I think that's where the Manchester United of this world, and, and even if you see it in the NBA now with LeBron James crossing from Cleveland Cavaliers, you know, I think you can get caught up in the star power and 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 not focus on what your your purpose is and your and your trademark and your behaviours. And James, I'd be I'd certainly be interested in your thoughts on that, as I'm sure Cody has his question um, asked. Yeah, look, I agree. You know, football, soccer, you know, hugely individualistic in the sense that one player can make a massive difference and often one manager or or coach can come in and make it certainly a a massive short-term impact uh, uh, on that. And so the owners, you you know, there's a feudal system around English football. You've got the kind of the, the absentee landlords, the owners, you've got the flat caps in the middle who sort of run the club and then you've got the hired help that come in and go down the mall. And and the 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 short termism that happens and the and the individual, you know, let's put a star in place and see what happens. You know, there's a big difference between culture and climate, I think. You know, the culture of Manchester United clearly is is fantastic and has been for a long, long time. But the climate there has clearly not been great. Um and I think that's had a lot to do with ego and individual personality. And we've seen a manager who's exhibited similar kind of um, spikes in early performance out of sort of a fair-based thing and then, and then has kind of seems to have lost the room in one way or another. Uh, and that's happened on a, you know, repeatedly within the Premier League for, for the guy we're talking about. Uh, and clearly that hasn't worked really well. I think one thing that's really interesting if you compare Manchester United and the All Blacks is that Alex Ferguson in his great reign uh, had a couple of things going for him. He was given a lot of time uh, and he was able, you know, he didn't start off very, very strongly, but he was given a lot of time uh, to build a culture and to build a climate and to build a team. And that paid dividends over, over a long period of time. He had a very strong core leadership group, that kind of, that, that, that class of players who had all played together from sort of the, um, the parks in Manchester and had come all the way through. Um, but there's something that was different, I think. You know, one that Alex Ferguson used to say, no one is bigger than the manager. Uh, and that was one of his sort of mantras, if you like. The All Blacks say no one is bigger than the team. And so I think one thing that's interesting that happened is that Sir Alex left and no one's bigger than the manager, but, but that the, the legacy that he left wasn't necessarily um, bottled and didn't necessarily last. Uh, whereas I think what we see with a team like the All Blacks, because it's really about the legacy and the team and the culture and the standards and the behaviours and the expectations within that that culture, that that culture is sustainable. It doesn't sort of seem to matter so much who's at the helm. Um, the idea of the team and the the core culture of the team kind of keeps it together uh, as 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 churn happens. So, um, you know, you you kind of can't buy in character. You know, you've got to, you know, if you're looking at buying, bringing, buying in talent, uh, it may gel, but, but it doesn't necessarily. And I think that's a, a massive disconnect between their fundamental culture and the climate that the individual stars are creating, perhaps. That's my take anyway. That's an interesting one. And I, let's dig into this a little bit more, because as I mentioned, both you guys in the culture consultancy business and so you know talking about bringing all these methodologies and you know the purpose and the trademarks and the behaviors like you've talked about Ruzi into the boardroom and into companies how how do we get it so that those legacies do prevail because it's one of the the major shortcomings I think in in the business world is there's so much in and out and it's so easy to become misaligned with the, the vision of the organization so you know I guess just interpretations from you guys coming from your sporting background where there's kind of the, the strong icons and uh, the strong cultures around clubs, how do we bring it in there so that you know, companies that have their legacy prevail during churn as well? well? I think one of the things James touched on is one of the things I talk about all the time. You've got talent-based teams and you've got behavioural-based teams. 
And there's a very, very big difference. So a talent-based team will win when they've got really good talent. A behavioural-based team will continue to win because they've got great habits. So they're not as reliant on talent. Now, that's, that's transferable to the corporate world. The biggest problem I see with the corporate world is they're so outcome-focused. They're so outcome-focused on their five-year plan, their three-year plan, their budgets, et cetera, et cetera, their shareholders, you know, how much money they're going to make, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, really difficult to, to, to them focusing on behaviours. There's enormous opportunity in the corporate world. The, the, the corporate world, the ones that start to think about the process and the ones that start to think about people and relationships and behaviours and communication and honesty and trust and all those sorts of things, they're the ones that are continue to thrive because the, the corporate world has changed like the footy world, but some of them probably haven't kept up with the, the all-black type scenario, the, the Sydney Swans, the Hawthorne Footy Club, the Geelong, the San Antonio Spurs, the, the great teams of the world are relationship-based, behavioural-based, communication-based, but in my experience, the biggest problem for corporates is they're so outcome-focused that they really can't bring themselves down often enough to that behaviour, and that's probably one of the biggest you know, challenges or opportunities. I think it's a fantastic opportunity, and I suppose that's why I've really enjoyed the last two years of being in the corporate space more because there's enormous opportunity. Um, I think they, they get it. There's no doubt they get it. They understand it. They see what the All Blacks have done. They see what the Sydney Swans have done. They see what Melbourne Footy Club have done. So they're ready for it, but it's just they're so outcome-focused, it's very hard at times to bring them back to that process. Yeah, spot I totally, totally agree, Paul. I also, you know, there are a sports team as in a corporate team. You know, there are issues of scale, um, and uh, the more international you go, competing cultures, competing kind of national cultures. Uh, there's what we kind of call the permafrost. You know, the second or third tier leadership for whom change is a danger, not necessarily an opportunity. And so there's a lot of sort of, you know, holding on to what you've got. Um, the, the other thing that I think happens, you know, absolutely because it's results-based, the alignment around rewards and recognition tends to be skewed. You know, in a, in a sporting environment, if, personal, if, if, if a team performs well, it knows it performs well. Um, in a business environment, you're not rewarded for effort, if you like. You know, it's, it, it's sort of cheapened uh, to that. And so... If it's all about the bonus at the end of the year, if it's all about your area getting the bonus, if it's all about your your progression up the chain, if you like, then your actions are unlikely to be contributing to something bigger and more long-term and creating a legacy. And I think, so there are a lot of kind of leaps that need to be pulled, I think, within a corporate environment that allow alignment around uh, a singular idea, a, a purpose, around building those sort of processes around behaviours. But, but, you know, as Paul says, you know, it's, it's much, much more important now for businesses, huge reputational risk for businesses. You look at what's happened with Uber, you look at what's happened with Volkswagen and skewing emission standards. You look at the Me Too movement and a lot of the issues that have uh, been faced within that. They're all behavioural issues and they're all defined by a kind of a culture that's turned a blind eye. And I don't think that's acceptable anymore. Uh, and I don't think it's very wise for long-term sustainable success. And the, the 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 final thing, you know, to 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 amplify what Paul, you know, what Paul said is that you know culture is a force multiplier. It 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 allows you to do more with less. You know, if you're behavioural and values-based, and uh, as as a group, you can maybe not have the quality of talent, uh, but you can certainly get cumulative results. Um, you know, you might not win every game, but you're more likely to win tournaments. And the same uh, approach is really true for, for, uh, for business. If you've got a, a committed group of people all clustered around a singular idea, behaving really well, communicating and connecting and creating cohesion really, really well, that's a huge competitive advantage and what the military would call a force multiplier. You know, you achieve more impact with the same amount of uh, resources. And that, you know, again, as Paul said, that's a tremendous opportunity in business. Uh, but the challenge, as always, is how to execute. Absolutely. And you're right in what you said, Paul, in terms of the, work, the business world is ready for it. It's, it's pretty clear. You know, you, you, 
look at the Amazon bestsellers at the moment and it's it's radical candor and it's principles by Ray Dalio and these uh, you know these uh, communication styles that are a little bit more ruthless than historically in the business world and you know I look at that from a sporting perspective and kind of say yeah like we've kind of always spoken to each other like that and it's it's how teams communicate in in the military as well and so I think you're exactly right. It's um, it's certainly poised for it, but the the implementation becomes a challenge. Um, I'm curious, actually, on that in terms of the the communication styles, and again talking about radical candor and radical transparency. Uh, that's been a core part of uh, again what you became famous for in in Sydney in terms of the communication styles, Paul, and then also part of the the All Blacks methodology. So. We'll start with you, Ruzi, in terms of the, the communication to make all this work. How do we take it from what you guys were doing in the locker room into the boardroom? Look, I think well, I just recently spoke at a conference. And one of the things I said is that leaders, it's exhausting. It, it is exhausting to be a leader because to be a great leader, you have to communicate. But... I think the missing piece often in, in certainly one of the things that we were able to do, and I'm sure the All Blacks did that as well, um, having met with them a couple of times, is you've got to create the framework around what the communication is. It's fine to, to have this candid communication, but if you don't actually know what your behaviours are, it's very hard to know what you're communicating about. And what we were able to do at Sydney, and this is the biggest change in football over the last 20 or 30 years, is as a group we set our behaviours and we set our standards. We had a captain in Stuart Maxfield that said, okay, well, this is what we've agreed to do. I'll drive the standards within my playing group. And we had a coach that was able to communicate with his players and communicate with Stuart and and articulate really clearly what those behaviours were and what those standards are. I think there's two problems. Um, One of the problems is that that leaders are often challenged by behaviours because their behaviours are poor themselves. So for for them to implement a set of behaviours when they can't carry them out themselves, I I like to refer to leadership as role models. We've got to change some of the terms. We've got to change culture from culture to behaviours and we've got to change leadership to role models. So often it's the leader that's challenged because if you're setting a set of behaviours and he can't... Um, adhere to those behaviours. It's very difficult to them to for him to then set standards. So we were really fortunate to have great leaders at Sydney Swans, and I'm sure it's exactly the same with the All Blacks. Um, but that's one of the clear challenges. But leadership is about communication. But what are we communicating about? We're communicating about a set of standards, and it's not personal. It's just this is what we believe in, and this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to reward. And this is what we're going to challenge. And it's absolutely 100% transferable. And the companies that do it really, really well um, are really, really successful. And they're honest with each other. And it's a very similar process to what it is with the, the Swans and I'm sure with the All Blacks. Yeah, great. I mean, if I can build on that, I think, you know, the standards and the standards and expectations early season or getting what is expected and what is, you know, what, what the team stands for, what the organization stands for and what it won't, you know, is incredibly important very early days because as Paul says, you know, you need to be communicating something and there needs to be a framework for that. Um, you know, a lot of the times, particularly in business, everyone turns up with their own set of assumptions. You know, this is how we did it at the last company. This is how we do it in our business group. Uh, and they come to the table and, and actually there is no common culture or common framework for it. And so, you know, one of the most, most valuable exercises, and, you know, I've done this with, you know, special force groups as well as, you know, FTSE 500 companies is, okay, guys, well, what is it that we stand for? What, how do we clearly articulate uh, that framework? Uh, because, and it doesn't necessarily matter in the short term so much, but it matters at the sort of the business end of the season or where things are getting difficult in a sports team, you know, and it's Thursday and no one really wants to train and it's raining and it's difficult to be, for people to be able to hold each other to account because they signed up to this some time ago. Otherwise, it's like, well, who, it's, it's politics. Who's telling whom what? Rather than actually we have an agreement and we're just calling each other on our word and we're holding each other to account. And that's very, very powerful. Um, 
The second part of that is, you know, it, it means that it's co-created. Um, Wayne Smith, you know, the genius coach behind a lot of the All Black success, you know, in, in recent years, has a great line. He, he says, people will rise to a challenge if it's their challenge. And so creating that connection uh, with, with it, rather than these are rules imposed from above, this is the way we expect you to be, much, much more powerful if it's something that, that has come from the, gr the ground up, if you like. Um, and so a process of dialogue, communication through dialogue, dialogue so that it's not, you know, top down, this is what we want from you, but a, but a genuine dialogue and a co-creation is an incredibly important part. Much more difficult, clearly, at scale than in a team, but still with technology uh, and, uh, and by putting a process in place, um, achievable. Um, and then, you know, the, the third part really, and the All Blacks just say, you know, stab me in the belly, not the back. Tell me what I need to know to get better. You know, creating dialogue that, that moves it forward, uh, that allows what needs to be said to get said. You know, I think one of the, the first sign of a dysfunctional team is the stuff gets not said. You know, it gets swept under the carpet or bitched about behind the scenes uh, and not directly addressed. So finding a safe environment and a professional environment in which the things that need to be said get said is incredibly important so you know it can be very easy that direct talk becomes kind of bullying or uh you know political point scoring or whatever but finding a safe approach to that and a safe sort of way of doing that is incredibly important and then again as paul as paul says that you know leadership you know I don't know, I'm going to throw a statistic. 99% of leadership is about what you do, not what you say. It's leading by example. And uh, there's no point in telling somebody not to do something when you're clocking off early and, uh, and not doing it. And so really behavioral leadership, if you like, and culture and beha as behavior and leadership as behavior, I think is sort of fundamentally it. You know, what do you say in the times that you're not saying something? It's incredibly important. James, do you think that copying is a big barrier here? Like you've got, you know, the 15 principles behind the All Blacks. Do you think people just kind of read your book and grab, try to grab those 15 principles and implement them in their organisation and, and that's kind of what's holding them up in that they're not coming from an authentic position? Um, I, I think that's a danger of doing that. You, you know, you can't land a spaceship and expect everybody to speak the same language. It doesn't, it doesn't really work like that. And, it, it, you know, creating a culture is about extracting what is and, and the strengths of a particular group or, or organization and, and where it is in time, you know, and, and every group is going to be different. You know, the swans and the bloods, you know, different, all blacks, very different from, you know, Dyson or Google. It's about understanding what is true and authentic for you and then finding ways to, to, to capture that, to articulate that, to define standards and expectations and behaviors around that, and to create a narrative around it. You know, who we are, you know, the way we speak, the, the common, uncommon language, the symbols and the rituals and the rewards and, and, and so on off the back of that. And that's, you know, unique for every organization. And I think part of the, the art and the science of it is the art of it, is, is the art of leadership, understanding that and not just trying to kind of cut and paste something on top of it. Um, and and the, the, one, of, one of the, the best sporting analogies for it, uh, I thought, is Clive Woodward, um, uh, who talked about it's, it's, it's a little bit like redecorating a house. You know, big old, you've got a big old house and it's got lots of history and lots of old furniture. And you, 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 you have a big lawn outside and it's a fine day. So you can take everything on that house outside and lay it on the lawn. And then you just pick the stuff that you want, the good stuff, and you put that back in. And then you can walk around the house and you can look at what's missing. And you can look at that area over there and think, well, that needs this and that needs a little bit of this. And I've, I've, really, I've always really loved that metaphor. And it works very, very well within, particularly within a business sense, in a sports sense as well. But that, you can, that, that most organizations, they have some good stuff. You know, their founding principles or their... Or, or the reason that people really love it, or the value that they're creating for people, or, or, or some rituals, or some interpersonal stuff that works really, really well. But often it's messed up, or something's happened, or there's been a merger and acquisition and it's been messed up, and no one's really had a, 
because it's so results oriented, nobody's taken the time to reflect on what they want. And so by taking the furniture out, looking at it and only putting the stuff back in from a, from a definition point of view, it's a very powerful way to start uh, and to really understand. But, but, you know, as you point out, it's got to be authentically from that organization banging 15 principles from somebody else on top of it. Uh, you know, it doesn't stick, it doesn't work. Um, that being said, a lot of the principles are transferable. You know, I think humility is something that I see as a as a principle that's fundamental in just about every successful uh, environment that I've that I've studied and looked at and worked with. In that, you know, if you think if you think you've got it made, it's the beginning of losing. You know, a focus on excellence incredibly important. Um, excellence and execution. A focus on personal discipline and accountability. Um, you know, the ability to have fun and to have to 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 have a, you know to have a sense of humour to take your work seriously, but yourself not too seriously. You know, all of these things are, are, are what the SAS call rank but no class, a sense that, sure, there's a hierarchy, but may the best idea win. And and there's a, a, effectively a flat leadership structure. The idea of leading by example uh, and, and so on. You know, all of those things remain true, I think, across all cultures, but the language and the interpretation of it is going to be different uh, for each individual culture, in my experience. And you're right, it's, it's something that is so transferable, whether it's even just if you're talking about a team in terms of being a husband and wife or a family, it's something that can exist in, in that team environment as well. Um, and James, you mentioned Dyson there as well. I wrote about them in my book and I find them really fascinating as an organisation, as someone that totally understands their why and, and what they're about. Um, have you done much work with them or, or studied up on, on the Dyson company at all? I've run some masterclasses with the, some of their leadership uh, at one point and, and really looking at um, the, the re, re, really, again, it was a fine-tuning of, of where they're at and a, and, a, and a chance to help them kind of re-galvanize as a team. You know, one of the things I think they're fantastic is they're always on the front foot. They're always kind of creating what's next. Uh, clearly, that's part of their culture in terms of the products they produce, but also their culture in terms of um, the, the the way they work together. So, so really, it was in in that focus. Um, but you know, you don't get to you don't get to create the future if you think you know it all already. And I think um, you know, there's a phrase I use in in legacy. You know, when you're on top of your game, change your game. You know, and and that's got to begin with a sense of of um, uh, you know what the, in the Zen masters would call a beginner's mind. You know, I don't know, I don't know. You know, I I stand in a point of being open to uh, to what's next, rather than falling back on systems and processes that have always been that way. You know, you clearly need your systems and processes in place, but thinking, you know, if you've got the winning formula, it turns out to be not a winning formula for for very long, and that takes a degree of humility. Not humility in terms of meekness but humility before the craft i think and uh so that's something you know certainly i found at dyson but in um you, you know and i would say just about well in in all the, the great teams are really highly functioning high performance teams there is that sense of um putting you know it's kind of performance minus ego um and and that lets the performance take take place and it's not about the internecine warfare that happens when when ego take you know it plays a role. Yeah, and Ruzi, you're a keen student. You mentioned you know you're an NFL fan and an NBA fan, and and you know even before you went into coaching, you wrote this whole passage in your book about how you went basically on a study tour. Uh, who are you looking at at the moment that's doing great work? Like we hear about the Patriots and the Spurs, um, who are obviously kind of top of the game in terms of what we're talking about with culture, but who do you look to at the moment? Who's, you know, making some buzz? Could be sport or business. Yeah, look, it was fascinating. I'm going back to 1999. I was really lucky because as a young, look, a, a young potential coach, I'd just finished playing in 1998. You have your ideas and your fundamentals and then you sort of test them out. So it was an amazing year going to the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Bulls, the 49ers, the Denver Broncos, et cetera, et cetera, LA Lakers sort of thing. So I think the biggest thing that stands out for me is 
it's just consistency. It, like it's consistent no matter what field you're in, and James just touched on it a bit. Doesn't matter whether it's sport or it doesn't matter whether it's business. You know, if you're thinking about behaviours, if you're thinking about team, if you're putting team ahead of the individuals, and I guess that's why it's quite fascinating. Everything I look at now, I mean, obviously I love the Swans and I love the Melbourne Footy Club, but I'm more a student of leadership and a student of, you know, whether that is the corporate world or watching teams, you know, how they function. I think the great thing about the Golden State Warriors is they've assembled a really, really talented team but what makes them almost unbeatable is because their coach, Steve Kerr, and their, their star players are prepared to, to defer to each other. And, and when you're talking about star players, I think they've got five all-stars now on their team. So they've got an incredible amount of, of, of star power. And look, and there's a negative to that from a, an overall NBA point of view. And there's a lot of issues in the NBA now of LeBron leaving and there's teams talk of super teams. But again, even if you look at Golden State with the amount of talent they have, they're still a very much a behavioural-based team. And I think that what that shows you as well is, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're the most talented team, you still need really good behaviours. I love the Spurs because they've just stood the test of time and, you know, they're the, the one man down, the one man in, and they just continue to function over and over again as a, a regular sort of playoff team. But, I, but I, what I love to, to talk to corporates about is is watch because most people watch sport whether it's you know the, the all blacks or you know the wallabies or the swans or the nfl watch sport from a helicopter business point of view and it's amazing when you can just sit back and, and have a somewhat non-emotional approach to it because you see the functions of a team all laid bare in a two hour or three hour or however long the game you know takes and it, it, it's just fascinating when you, you explain to people and they watch it from a different perspective. So that, that's what I love to do. But certainly I'm excited about you know where the Golden State Warriors can go. And I understand how much talent they have, but I think Steve Kerr's done a great job. He's a student of Phil Jackson, who I love reading Phil Jackson's books. And he was the guy that sort of turned Michael Jordan into a great individual player, you know, to a six-time um, NBA champion. And one of the best things I learned from um, reading Phil's book as he explained to Michael, which was really, really smart, he explained to Michael Jordan, if you can make your teammates better, then your legacy, ironically talking about legacy, will be much, much greater because you'll start to win and people will start to recognise you as a great player because you'll start to win championships. And it was a really good way to, to hear, you know, as a potential coach going into, you know, what is often an ego-based you know, industry... How we explain to Michael to, to for you to be seen as a much better player, you need to get your teammates involved. And Michael was smart enough to go, well, that makes sense to me. Got his teammates more involved and won six championships, and now is widely regarded, you know, as the, the greatest player of all time. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Going back to Steve Kerr, one of the more controversial things I think I wrote in in my book was about this idea of experienced leaders. And I used an example of a coach's name's Julian Nagelsmann, uh, who coaches Hoffenheim in the German Bundesliga. He's 29 when he took the job, essentially hauled them out of the relegation zone and, and they're now in Europe. And, and so I started to expand on that concept. And, and Steve Kerr falls into this as well, where yes, he had, had played under great coaches before, but this is someone that had never coached his own team before. He'd been in the front office, he'd been a broadcaster, and before he took the Warriors job, hadn't actually coached at any level his own team. So I, I guess my question, Rusey, do we uh, overestimate experience in leadership? Well, yes and no. I think there's characteristics because if you look at our game um, of recent times, probably the three, three of the greatest players that ever played, Michael Voss, James Hurd and Nathan Buckley, two of which are no longer coaching because they, they went into it far too early. And Nathan obviously just hung on and had a little bit more of an apprenticeship. Than, and I think if you talk to Michael Voss, Michael would say that he should have taken an apprenticeship. But it, it comes back to the learned behaviours and the personalities of the particular people involved. I mean, there's some non-negotiables in coaching. There's some non-negotiables in leadership if you want to become a, a great leader, you know, without going over to all the ones that James and I have spoken about. You know, you have to... Being a coach is a manager, but if you've never managed people and you've never been able to 
form relationships as a great player and you've been a selfish great player, you know, it's very, very difficult to, to transfer those lack of skills into suddenly, I mean, if you talk about, you know, an AFL team now, you're managing 44 players, you've got 10 assistant coaches, you've got a medical department, you've got a fitness department, you you know, you're helping out on the marketing side, the sponsorship side, et cetera. So if you, if you haven't got those skills, it's very, very difficult to do. Um, if you do have them or if you require them. So there's no, I don't think there's a black and white answer, but I think there's some learned behaviours and there's some certain skills that you have to have that if you haven't got them, it's going to be very, very difficult to be a great coach and a great leader. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I think um, it's an interesting discussion point. Obviously, it goes both ways. And, and yes, there's people that have been on the traditional pathway. And this is why I love looking at sport as a microcosm of what's possible elsewhere where there's opportunities potentially for genuine young leaders to be pushed into some sort of leadership pathway earlier in the corporate space, especially, rather than having to do, you know, be 45 when they eventually get to progress into some sort of leadership, uh, I guess was my ultimate point. Um, I think I think on that, Cody, again, I think James can weigh in. It's interesting in talking to like corporates, over, particularly over the last couple of years, I think what happens is often the opposite to what you're saying. We talk about character and competence. I think people are getting mainly promoted on competence, like technical competence. So, you know, I can, I'm really good at building a car and, and then I become... And I think that's part of the problem. So the, the guys that are perhaps not as technically competent but have really, really sound character, so they understand their flaws and they, there's, there's no ego in them. And what happens is those guys, if you put them in leadership roles, will be able to fill the roles around them with people that are competent. The competent people that aren't of great character aren't aware of what their pitfalls are. So, so you're in danger of, of having a whole leadership team that is technically competent, but, but incompetent in being a leader because they're, they're not of great character because they haven't developed the other skills. And I think that's one of the real big problems in corporates that often they're, they're given promotions based on technical competence and a lot of them are incompetent in relation to those leadership qualities that they need to bring people along with them, to become role models, to have great self-awareness around what I can't do and what I can do. And I think that's to your point. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think the, the thing that I've been kind of stewing on recently is around this whole idea and we talked about it a little bit earlier around you know uber and and some of the things that have gone wrong um and, and it's kind of relevant here as well I, I talked about google and how i'm more interested in google's culture now than when things are going well now that they've had ten thousand of their employees walk out because they've been turning a blind eye to um you know some sexual assault uh things this is when those behaviours need to stand up and this is when you you find out where the real leaders are because, you know, that guy that is the number three salesperson, you know, now everyone's milling around his desk because he's the true leader. And and so, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think we just, we we take the guy that sells the most and we give him the management role. But in my experience, I think that number three and number four person they're probably more so the leader because they're not going to slash and burn everyone at every opportunity. And they're generally the ones that come to the rescue when things are going poorly, you know, like they are at, at Google and, and Uber at the moment. Well, I think in terms of football, that transition happened. Traditionally in footy, the captain was the most talented player. So all the, all had been there the longest. And look, most of the time, to be fair, they had really good behaviours. But often it didn't matter. The best player was the captain. In around about the time we made Stewie Maxwell captain, that huge transition take place in the AFL. Now you've got captains that are great character and great behaviours. And Stewie Maxfield, to be perfectly frank, probably wasn't in the best five to ten Swans players at the time. So it was a really, really interesting time for the Swans. And I remember the board saying, oh, Stewie Maxfield, the right... That transition happened in sport, as I said, in the mid-2000s. Now regularly what you have is the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth best player in the team is captain because their behaviours are so good. And I think that's what you're talking about. It'll be interesting, James, in your experience, particularly with the All Blacks and also the, you know, the, the corporate sector, you know, at what point has that transition happened or, or is it still happening in the corporate world? 
I, I, I think, you know, I think it's still happening in the corporate world. I, I think, as you say, you know, I think it was called the Peter Principle, wasn't it? That, that people are promoted to their level of incompetence. And, and um, that if you're purely looking at competence in terms of, you know, sales or technical ability or, you know, uh, the, the numbers, and you're not looking at competence in terms of character and leadership, then you're, you're looking in the wrong places. And, I, you know, there are, we talk about the corporates and clearly there's a very broad, hugely broad spectrum in a massive, massive world. And there are clearly some very um, enlightened, if you want, for, for, for a better word, uh, employment practices. And there are some pretty um, Neanderthal ones. Um, you know, I, I, I think the thing that that strikes me around the quality of leaders that, that I see is that, you know, great leaders are fundamentally great connectors. You know, they bring people together. They know their own faults, as, as you say. They know where they're strong, but they know where the gap needs to be filled. And I think, you know, in, in, in many teams, the, the, the great leaders, are, they're almost physically pulling that team together. They, they create that team. They create those bonds. And, and that's not a technical ability that's so that's an emotional ability it, it requires you know an emotional intelligence it, it requires a certain courage and preparedness to to go there um I, I, you know a, a primary confidence and there you know a primary kind of uh, self-confidence and self-knowledge and humility um and unless you're looking for that you you're not going to get it um jim collins uh, uh talk, talked about um uh, I think you call them type A leaders um, who uh, were really about, you know, uh, what is their contribution to something bigger than themselves? Um, and, uh, you know, Paul put it well, you know, the, 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 the selfish players aren't necessarily the, the unself well, are unlikely to become the unselfish leaders. And that sense of giving it away is literally empowerment in a sense, you know, giving power away, creating the environment, being the resource for other people to flourish. And that's a particular worldview and a particular kind of leadership position that's not necessarily understood or, or many people aren't comfortable with it. So it's a rare qu quality. Uh, and unless you're looking for that rare quality, you're not going to find it. It's a much easier calculation to go, he sold 50 million units last year, let's give him the next job. It's a much more, um, it's a much more of a human judgment and that's difficult to systemize, uh, if you like. So. You know, I don't think it within a corporate environment, uh, it isn't there. I'm not sure there's been a tipping point. Um, you know, in sport, clearly that has been recognized, uh, as, as you say, in the mid-2000s, much more, much more readily. But I think, uh, as you say, the Amazon lists, Cody, the Amazon lists are, are now more full of books that are really talking about personal leadership and, and principled leadership and really character and behavior-based uh, understanding of what leadership is. And I think that's a massively healthy shift in our understanding, um, you know, the art and science of leadership. I, think. I know we've got to get Paul off to a, a family dinner here, and, and I want to let you guys ask any questions of each other as well, obviously uh, uh, being on the phone together. But, uh, James, I'll just ask you this because I've been dying to uh, ask this question, and I've told you a couple of times via email how many times I get recommended your book. And I've heard people like Atlanta Falcons coach Dan Quinn talk about your book at a press conference. Who has it completely blown you away that has read the book or mentioned it in public that you kind of weren't expecting when you were writing it? Ah, uh, great, great, great. You know, as a writer, you know, I was just shocked anyone would read the book. <laughs> you know, you're, you're sitting there scribbling, scribbling away. I, I, I wrote a, a large chunk of it in, a, in the back room of a pub in the, in the Scottish Hebrides. And, you know, you don't really know if anyone's going to read it. There are a lot of sport books out there, a lot of sports books, a lot of leadership books, all black books. So, you know, first I was shocked that it, that it got traction, I guess. Um, I think I'm, I'm, what I'm most proud of is the variety um, uh, of teams, you know, from sort of military, from the Navy SEALs, you know, to Tier 1 Special Force teams, SWAT teams, Paras, Gurkhas, Black Watch, you know, fantastic you know, units and with, with really proud legacies of their own, you know, from business, from Google, Red Bull and McKinsey and, and so on, you know, sport across all, all areas, as you say, the, the Falcons and in the NFL and it's given me a chance to work with Major League Baseball, which was a dream of mine. Um, you know, in, in, 
I think I think the thing that's touched me most is is actually the educational side of it. Um, and the developing of young of character. So from from Eton, uh, I've had a chance to do some work with them to um, you know Eton College to a fantastic charity in the back blocks of northern New South Wales called Backtrack, who work with disadvantaged kids in that area to really look at how they can create their own kind of set of behaviours that's going to create um, a successful life. So. And I and I think that educational side I think gives me certainly I would I wasn't looking for it and, and but it certainly gives me the most satisfaction because I think that idea that if you if you as a leader if your role is not just to get a result but is to develop talent and develop character or help people develop their own sense of identity and belief and belonging and so on and give purpose in life that's you know that's transferable across any domain and I think it it's it is really um, satisfying and quite moving when you see that put into play in people who might not otherwise have a chance. And so for me, that's certainly, I don't know if that's the most shocking, but certainly the most satisfying uh, area that I've sort of discovered that this, that, that this book and my work has sort of made an impact. That's wonderful. And I've had the same thing as well. It's just kind of blown my mind who has ended up reading it in the, the vast array of different people that have seen themselves reflected in yeah something that again was you know written in in the apartment on my bed kind of thing and um yeah uh, op- op- open floor lads uh, if you guys want to ask each other questions let's do it yeah i know i know james we met with the all blacks and one of their biggest challenges and actually it must have been i don't know what the solution they found one of their biggest challenges was the provincials when they found their players were going back and i know we spoke a lot about the behaviors and how they wanted to, to drive the All Blacks and drive the system. But that seemed to be one of their biggest challenges. How did they overcome um, that? the fact that when they did go back and, and had those different relationships and different coaches and, and different problems? Was there, was there a key to that and unlocking that problem that they were obviously going through? I think it was around the mid-2000s when we caught up with them. Yeah, Um I'm not sure I've got a straight answer for that. I think, you know, the, clearly there are issues around, you know, there are a lot of cultures. You know, many players dip in and dip out of different cultures and they, uh, and, you know, you quickly become kind of accustomed to the to the ocean you're swimming in and and different expectations and, and so on. I think, you know, I think one of the advantages that certainly the All Blacks have is that it's the All Blacks. Um, it is the sort of the pinnacle within the country. Um and and you know in my observation and 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 you know I, l- I look at this if I look at kind of special force or or military units who dip in and dip in out of different teams some of the issues are the same, um, you know I think the power of kind of kind of what I'd kind of call ritual rebooting is really really powerful bringing people together in a room remind reflecting and reminding them of 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 what it means of of rebooting that story of. And the storytelling aspect, um, I think, is something that in, in leadership generally has been, uh, and maybe this is the relationship between kind of competence and, and character. You know, a lot of very competent people can't necessarily tell a good story, can't connect through narrative. And I think one thing the All Blacks do very, very well, uh, and many great teams do very, very, very well, is they tell their own story to themselves very, very strongly. And, you know, clearly there's the, the more obvious things, the haka. And the, and the performing of that, literally the embodiment of what that team means, it like literally kind of connects them. It connects them to the breath, connects them to the legacy and connects them to each other. Those rituals, you know, the rituals of the, of the handing over of the jersey, of, of passing the, the idea that the jer- you, you, you're just the custodian of that jersey. Um, the, the, the ritual that that when when the All Blacks cross the Seven Bridge on the way to Wales, they stand up halfway across the r- bridge and go, "We never lose to Wales," and you know they haven't since what is it, 1956, I think. Um, finding ways to reconnect people with who they are and what they stand for and, and why it matters, I think, is something that certainly that group do very very well. Military, the military tend to do. You know, pretty well around around um, inductions and badgings and uh, and so on. And so, so leaders who really understand that that those cultural rituals and those cultural symbols and those kind of cultural moments of connection are really important can kind of 
bring people back into the fold very, very quickly. And I, so in answer to your question, I think the All Blacks do that very, very well. Um, and have had to do it very well because clearly they lose their players for some parts of the, the time and bring them back and, and give them a compass bearing again, I think, uh, is, is hopefully an answer to your question. I don't, I, I don't know if, um, if it's answered their question, but I think that's kind of the, the strength they have in creating their culture every season or season. I was going to throw a question back at you, which is the, um, uh, you know, one of the chapters, you know, in, the, in, in Legacy is, is no dickheads. Um, and the question I get asked all the time within the business thing is, is you know, how do you deal with dickheads? You know, and, and the, the killer question is, what say your boss is the dickhead? Um, so I want to throw that back at you and say, you know, from a, from a kind of uh, endorsing and enforcing zone within, I guess, within a team environment, but also within uh, corporates, you know, how, to, how, to, you know how, how can culture mitigate the impact you know, the loose cannon or the maverick and, and what are different processes or, or, or approaches you might think about in terms of addressing that kind of question? Look, for me, as probably with you, John, it's, it's really simple. Most people are fine with a set of standards and behaviours. I think corporates certainly go to the value level and by say that honesty and trust and, you know, integrity and things like that. But you've got to delve below that and you've got to sort of say, well, what are the behaviours that underpin, you know, honesty and trust or whatever it might be? And I think once you define that, we talked about a lot, you act your way into the system and you act your way out of the system. Now, I know it's very different in corporates and your biggest challenge if your leader's a dickhead, for want of a better term. But what I say to people, is everyone knows they're dickheads. Everyone's waiting for the leader to get rid of that person or the person above the leader to get rid of them. No one's fooling anyone in that organisation. And as we, you know with the All Blacks, players are really, really smart. Players know what I'm thinking and what I'm rewarding and what I'm encouraging, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a really strong system. You've got to make really hard, difficult decisions. And the really hard players that I had to get rid of were not the talented blokes that acted their way out of the system. They were really easy because at the end of the day, they were sort of telling me that I was a dickhead by keeping them on the list. The hardest people are the other ones. The, the, from a footy point of view, you've got to obviously have a, a you know, degree of talent. The hardest ones that I had to look them in the eye were the ones that just did everything right, but purely from a technical point of view, they just weren't quite up to it. Or as we got better, they just got bypassed. That was really difficult in a behavioural-based system to actually sit down across from a player who'd done everything right and said, look, we just have to get rid of you. The other ones acted their way out of the system. Everyone knows who, who the guys are, as you well know. Everyone knows who's not acting within the best interest of the system. Most people are waiting for you to get rid of that guy. And I say this all the time. In a footy sense, that guy that gets 30 possessions, yeah, he's playing well, but his behaviours are terrible. As soon as he leaves, someone else will pick up five possessions, someone else will pick up 10 possessions. That 30 possessions translates to 40. In a business sense, that's $10 million that that guy's riding. That gets gobbled up because people say, for God's sake, well, I'm glad those, that guy's gone. I'm glad that dickhead's gone. Now I know what's valued in this company. Now I'm going to work a little bit harder. Now I know I'm going to get rewarded. That $10 million gets gobbled up and becomes $20 million really, really quickly. Stick to your standards, stick to your behaviours, Act your way in, act your way out. All right, gentlemen, let's wrap this up. This has been fantastic. I've got about four pages worth of notes. So we'll do final uh, promos for you both. Uh, Paul, where can people follow along with you, uh, get in touch with you, uh, book you to to come and work with them, uh, however uh, they can follow along? Yeah, look, absolutely. I've enjoyed it as well. and I've I've loved listening to James, so thanks very much for the opportunity. Look, there's probably two ways. My company's Performance by Design, so www.performancebydesign.com.au or from a corporate speaking point of view, the Fordham company there, the the boys that manage me, Nick Fordham, so you can get hold of them, fordhamcompany.com.au. So, no, I've absolutely loved it. I've I've really appreciated it, and thank you for for asking me to come on with James. It's been a pleasure. No, not a problem, mate, and enjoy your dinner. And we'll throw over to you, James. How can people get in touch with you, mate? Uh, There's a very good book on the subject. It's called Legacy, and it's available in all good bookshops. (laughs) Um, It's got some contact details in the back of that, Um, 15 Lessons in Leadership, plug, plug, plug. 
My uh, consultancy, is, is, consultancy is called Fable Partners. We're London-based. Uh, a quick Google should, um, uh, should, should find that. Um, I'm represented for speaking in masterclasses through the London Speaker Bureau. Um, so a quick Google again would, would find that. I'm on LinkedIn and, um, uh, and generally around. So, um, you know, and just to reiterate what Paul said, it's been a pleasure to be in conversation with him and, and with you, Cody. You know, this is obviously each of our sweet spot in terms of um, uh, our kind of leadership practice and, and the area that we're in. So it's been a real a, a pleasure and a privilege to, to be part of this. And, and thank you for having me. Couldn't agree more, mate. Thanks a lot, fellas. Cheers, guys. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave them a five-star rating, but I'd rather you go and check out Leaders in Sport. I've got an exclusive offer for you to claim one of 100 free trials of their online membership with unlimited access for a month. The Leaders Performance Institute gives you members-only access to their entire catalogue of content, which includes contributions from many of the guests you've heard on this podcast. As a member, you'll get full access to daily articles, deep dive performance reports, industry trends, and event videos. Plus, I'll be writing a monthly column throughout 2019. There's only 100 free trials, so jump on this now before they run out. Visit leadersinsport.com forward slash Cody to claim your free membership for the month. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.